0: There are things we can't stop, but it's never too late. Because first of all, you know there are feedbacks we've set off with climate change. We could turn off all our cars tomorrow and there would still be changes that we've started happening that you can't go back from. That is absolutely true. On the other hand, you can always make it worse. So if you look and think, oh, it's hopeless, let's just keep burning all the fossil fuels you can. Well, that future, is a lot worse than the future where we stop doing things, even if both of those futures
1: are still different than the past. That's biologist and adventurer Aaron McKittrick. This week's guest on episode 107 of the Unplug Podcast. <music> Hello and welcome to another inspiring week of the Unplugged Podcast where we unplug from status quo and shift the paradigm from head to heart by igniting a more passionate, compassionate, loving, and activated world. And this is the audio space where you will hear powerful conversations with the courageous truth seekers and free thinkers of today's rapidly collapsing world. And my name is Debo Zarko, warrior of truth, cultural revolutionary, status quo crusher, and passionate lover of life here to welcome you to your bi-weekly dose of authentic expression, truth, critical thought, provoking words, and open-hearted inspiration from my paradigm-busting headquarters in beautiful coastal British Columbia, Canada. And with abrupt climate change being a hotter and hotter topic of conversation these days, both literally and figuratively, it's becoming increasingly evident that our altered planet is a source of great concern for many of us. And on a personal level, there are so many things that are contributing to a low-grade undercurrent of unease as we are uh, now crossing many tipping points of no return. And one of the most profound tipping points relates to the accelerated melting of Arctic sea ice. For many of us, though, we live in locations so far removed from it that because of our lack of physical proximity, we don't necessarily concern ourselves with it. However, living in an interconnected world with a collapsing web of life, of which we as a species are entirely responsible for, every single self-reinforcing positive feedback loop that plays out right now is a feedback loop that affects us all. And with increasing positive feedback loops feeding on each other, we're now witnessing the accelerated repercussions of climate change with epic droughts, epic flooding, epic wildfires, epic superstorms, epic hail, epic animal die-offs, and on and on and on it goes. And if you don't know what I'm talking about when I talk about a positive feedback loop, we go into great depth in this conversation today about just that. And I also, I just want to mention that I cannot tell you how often I hear conversations or I read uh, in articles something like, um, wow, I've never seen uh, fill in the blank. So wildfires, droughts, flooding, animal die-offs, whatever. I've never seen anything like this in my life. And this is not from people who are typically aware. These are conversations often initiated by the status quo masses. And what I find really interesting is that in one breath, they're baffled by what's playing out and in the next, they're rationalizing it or denying it as an anomaly. So why is it that a lack of sea ice is of great concern? In simple terms, the white of the ice and the snow reflects the sun back into the atmosphere, maintaining a cooler ocean and thus a cooler earth. A lack of sea ice, on the other hand, means a lack of albedo, otherwise known as whiteness. And we're going to talk a lot about that today as well. And I'm just going to give you just a short synopsis here, but a lack of albedo means that things are darker. So no ice means dark water, more dark water to absorb the heat of the sun and create a warming effect. So just, you know, as an example, think of a warm, hot, sunny day in the summer when it's really hot. Ask yourself, does it make more sense to wear a white t-shirt? or a dark t-shirt? I think the answer is pretty obvious, right? So the warmer the water, the more things melt, which also means less albedo. And this feedback loop becomes self-reinforcing with no way to stop it. So warmer, warming oceans also mean acidification, deoxygenation, and expansion. Yes, warm water expands. All you need to do is, you know, just get a, uh, a cup of water that's cool, mark the level before it goes into a microwave, nuke it for a minute and watch how much the water rises from the, the original marking and you'll see that water expands when it's warm. So this means sea levels rise and it also means altered ocean current patterns, methane release and many other feedback loops that are now, that now start playing out as well. And the feedback loops are now out of control and nature is finding ways to regain her equilibrium, which means extreme events like droughts and wildfires and etc. all the stuff that I was talking about. And they're becoming the new normal. So you can now see how it is all feeding off each other. And as the feedback loops compound, the planet becomes less habitable for many plant and animal species and eventually it's going to not be habitable for us. So a lack of Arctic sea ice is a very, 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 very serious problem for our entire life support system on planet earth. Now we can listen to scientists go on and on about this, but science doesn't inspire us. It feeds the intellect with content but it doesn't activate our hearts. So rather than send you into a tailspin of despair with science and facts and figures and all that scientific stuff, I had the opportunity to speak with a woman who happens to be a biologist, but more importantly, she's also living in the epicenter of where it's all playing out in Alaska. So rather than blather on with, like I said, data and facts and figures and all of the scientific jargon, I spoke to this week's guest about her personal experiences living in the North trekking in the North and observing the changes in the North through both a scientific and a personal lens. Because, you know, honestly, like hearing the experiential stories of those living in the thick of it all is far more powerful than anything else. So this week's guest is adventurer, writer, and biologist, Erin McKittrick. She's originally from Seattle and she now lives in Alaska with her husband and two children where they live close to the land in their yurt. We chat about this simple way of living and we also delve into the epic human powered expeditions that give her firsthand experience with our altered climate. And Erin and her family live really rich lives that uh, really inspire me. And those lives are filled with wilderness adventure and really kind of amazing experiences. So, today we speak about many topics from simplicity to climate change and everything in between. And as a quick aside, I just want to let you know that when we recorded this interview, the wildfire, the beast, was still burning out of control in Fort McMurray, Alberta. And since then, as I released this in early August, Fort McMurray is underwater. Go figure. So, this just shows exactly the crazy extremes that we're experiencing right now from wildfire to flood within a matter of months. So this week's interview is both inspirational and eye opening. So, enjoy. Thank you for coming on to the show, and I've been looking through your website, and there's just so much information there that it's kind of hard to, to filter, but I've been honing in on some information that I think is really good to, to start things off with as a launching point. You originally are from Seattle, and you're now living in Alaska, and so we've been talking a little bit about living in Alaska, and I'm really curious, first of all, how you ended up in Alaska, and... I'm so curious to know what living in Alaska is like. It's one of these places that just seems so untamed and wild still, at least in my mind. And I'm sure that a lot of listeners probably have this this notion about Alaska too. So let's talk about how you got there and what it's like.
0: Yeah, well, I'm I'm sitting up here in my little office, which is a card table and in this unheated space with big window and I can see out to the ocean. And if it was clear, I'd see three volcanoes right now. But it's, I can see, but it's not clear enough to see all the way to them. So how we got there is we walked here. (laughs) From Seattle. (laughs) From Seattle. (laughs) So we actually... Um, And so there's some backstory to this in that, you know, we'd been doing wilderness expeditions for a while. My husband originally was from Alaska, and he was just finishing up his Ph.D., and I had already finished my master's degree in Seattle. And so we had decided that was a good time for a big life change. We actually had no plans beyond this. We, you know, got rid of almost everything we had, put a little bit in in my mother's basement and like put our backpacks on and we gave our key back to the landlord and we started walking in the middle of Seattle and we kept walking. (laughs) And we got, (laughs) you know, we went into Canada and then we went into Alaska and because Alaska is a very, very big place, that was actually only the first quarter of the journey was getting to the Alaska border. And then we just kept going along the coast until we got out to the first
1: island in the Aleutian chain. Wow. I, I like, <laughs> It's so funny when you said we walked. Well, I mean, that saves a lot on moving expenses, doesn't it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Not really. Cause you know, you're, you're out there for a year and you have to, you know, cause it, it took that long and I'm sure we, um, trying to buy food in tiny village grocery stores caught us, cost us more than it would have cost to move in a typical way. But we didn't actually know that we were moving. We knew we were doing the trip and we thought we'd have plenty of time to figure out along the way where we might go after.
1: Okay. So are you originally from Seattle? Yes. Okay. So, what is it like? It must be a big culture change for you to live, or initially, was it a big culture change for you to live in Alaska?
0: Um, somewhat. I mean, I think that it's as much a difference to be in a big city in a small town than it is to be in Seattle versus, I mean, in Washington versus Alaska. Because, I mean, Alaska is its own unique place, but it's also Alaska has, you know, Anchorage, which is about hundreds of thousands of people and it's a pretty big city and when you're in the middle of you know people say that the best thing about Anchorage is that it's close to Alaska you know it's urban you know big four-lane streets with cars zipping around all over the place but where I live now is you know town we've got about 400 people maybe You know, wilderness all over the place and one characteristic of alaska communities that's pretty different than anywhere else i've been is that lots and lots of towns including ours you can't drive to mm. but probably you know not the majority of people in the state but surely the majority of communities in the state are not reachable by land unless you walk you know there's planes or boats
1: that sounds familiar. That's where I'm living too. I mean, the only the only way to get to the Sunshine Coast to Seychelles is either by ferry or float plane. And I love it. I love this. This uh, people call it isolated. I don't feel like it's isolated. I feel more connected to the natural world here. And you know, I really like the fact that it's it's so inaccessible, which I say in air quotes um, to the masses because it means it's quieter and it remains you know it remains more pristine for the most part. I mean, they're still the same stuff that goes on elsewhere but not to the same extent so did you happen to go through the sunshine coast when you walked up
0: we were on the inside of vancouver island when we paddled up we paddled through Oh, you paddled well we paddled and we walked and we skied we carried little rafts so <laughs> you carried we, all of that with you well we didn't carry the skis we got them mailed to us when it got to be winter time but we carried the rafts they're called pack rafts and we use them all the time because you know, you go through, BC is like this too, and Alaska is. There's water everywhere, mm-hmm. both the ocean and big rivers and things. And, and just walking without any way to cross water bodies is kind of hard. So if you carry a pack ref, you can walk and you can paddle. And you can do things like hop between islands and cross rivers and float them, that kind of thing.
1: That's so cool. I think uh, I probably saw a little snippet of that in your, uh, your, I saw your trailer for Journey on the Wild Coast. I think you've mm-hmm. got a little snippet of that there too they're cute probably yeah yeah and they come in different sizes
0: and and we have slightly larger ones now because we put our kids in them too but
1: so okay now I'm really curious about how you came about this this lifestyle of adventure and then I you know I want to weave into the environmental exploration too or did that just come naturally on its own with the adventurous nature of your your trekking um
0: I think that they they come together. So I think that I was always interested in environmental issues, even um, when, you know, even in Seattle, even when I was younger, even before I'd ever been to Alaska. And we started doing, you know, wilderness trips just because we wanted to do wilderness trips. But one thing, you go out there and you spend a lot of time seeing the world at human speed and... You meet people and you really can't help learning things like it's like you learn interesting things, even if you weren't meaning to. And we kept seeing that. and We're like, OK, well, let's just have that as one of the goals, too. We know it's going to happen. So let's we'll just say, OK, yeah, we are out there to have these experiences and to learn things. And, you know, we can back it up with, you know, research at home and then
1: share that with people. Hmm. So you, um, your background is in biology, right? Yeah. Now I'm curious how, um, when you started your treks, did you enter with the mindset of a biologist or an adventurer or both? Again, I guess this is kind of like expanding on the previous question.
0: I think, you know, Maybe I I can twist that on you and say the mindset of an explorer because Mm. it's not, you know, I've been worked in science and so when you're, you know, working in science, if you're really thinking as a biologist, you're thinking, okay, I'm going to carefully outline a very small question and try to control the variables and get a really solid answer. You know, if you're just entering with just as an adventure, you're thinking, okay, how am I going to push myself to do the craziest thing I can, but an explorer, and, you know, ignoring for a minute all the terrible things explorers did, because they did back in the day, they did a lot of terrible things, but kind of the basic idea was that they weren't doing any controlled scientific study, but they were going out there, and they didn't know what they were going to find, but they were trying to figure it out anyway, and they were hopeful hopeful that they could figure something out and bring back something that was useful. To the world like okay you know we'll make a map of this we'll go you know see if there's furs to trade for out here we'll go write you know draw little pictures of all these plants we found Mm. that nobody we know has ever seen before and they're not really quite scientists either Mm. and so you know I can't I've done enough science to say that when I just like wander around and look at stuff. I'm not doing real science, but I am learning things.
1: (laughs) So it's just a voracious curiosity that happens to um, have a bit of a scientific twist every now and then.
0: Well, and I do, you know, one of the things that I do is that I live in two worlds, right? I mean, I, I do go out in the wilderness, but I also can be sitting here and I am talking to you because I have this computer and this computer is connected to the Global world of information and I Do you know read up on all this stuff and I link that to the things I've seen and the people I've talked to but it wouldn't be I couldn't get as much without having both sides of that Mm. like like, I can go out and You know live on the sea ice for a few months and talk to all the people who hunt on it and that's really powerful to see how that works, but it's also really important to go and like look up and all the graphs and the, and the papers and all of the, you know, careful work people have done, you know, measuring it with satellites over 30 years that you can't replicate just by going somewhere.
1: (laughs) You talk about living in two worlds and, and, um, you know, when we first started, before I started recording, we were talking about how you live in a yurt. So it's, it's interesting because, you know, when I think about living in the two worlds, I think more of the modern conveniences of like a house. I mean a yurt to me is is something that I aspire to. I would love to live in in a simpler environment like that. And I think that there's this I, 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 there's a curiosity about well for me and I'm sure others who are listening about what a yurt is like. I mean let's let's um when you're living in a yurt it seems like something that's simpler that's more aligned with nature. Not necessarily, you know, you're not living right on the land, but you're living closer to it. So what, like, I'm curious, what's it like to live in a yurt? Like, what about the trappings of civilization? You say that you've got the internet, which obviously you do, because we're talking right now. But what about, um, you know, running water, uh, cooking, plumbing, that sort of thing? Um, It's funny, because
0: that's the answer to that is actually, you know, changed over the years since we set up the yurt. So we always um, had electricity, because we happened to set up we happen to live on, um, basically on a trail that goes up into the mountains. That's also a power line easement. So the power lines were there. So we always had electricity. And at the beginning we had electricity to, so we could have like, you know, we had to plug in computers and we had a regular electric stove, but for heat, we just had a wood stove. We still just have a wood stove for heat. And, um, we mostly, my husband really, you know, goes out, especially in the winter and, saws down dead snags and cuts them up and pulls them in a little sled back home and we cut those up and use them for firewood and that's how we heat water we initially didn't have any and we had to haul it and then we fortuitously dug a hole and found water in it and so then we set ourselves up with a really shallow well like really shallow like the whole well is like eight feet deep <laughs> in <It> was <laughs> so it's not not a um <laughs> and you know alaska's a wet place and and so we found that spot and then we have slowly like been inching towards the 20th century with that <laughs> convenience. and that at first we just had the hole in the ground and we had a bucket and we had a string and if it was winter you had to like you know kind of get a little weight in the bucket and drop it on the ice to crack it before you could dip out the water and then we ended up building a little like there was a tree that was you know endangering the yurt and we had to cut it down and we got some friends who had a mill to bring their mill up and so we milled that tree just in our driveway into lumber and then made a little uh Wash house that was just big enough for like a sink and a shower and a washing machine. And so that's what we had. And we live on a, you know, kind of extended family compound. So we have our yurt and then there's a little cabin that my mother in law has and a little shed that my sister in law has and another little yurt that my mom has when she's here part time. So we've kind of got a bunch of people sharing that little water system. And then years later than that, we actually like ran a little pipe into the yurt so we can turn on the water in the sink which is kind of a fun way to do it actually because I feel like I have and we still don't have plumbing we have an outhouse we'll probably always have an outhouse we still don't but we have that you know now you can turn on the tap in the sink but having like gone through all those steps means that I'm just so grateful that it's easier to wash dishes after a party. It's like you really appreciate that when you've seen every little step it takes to get there <laughs> over the years. <laughs> that it's just like, you know, I can turn on the water now, and it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and I know it's fine, but it can't, because we go out on expeditions, and then we can't, and, and um, most of the other buildings on the property still don't, but... <laughs>
1: It's amazing the things that we take for granted, you know, last year uh, here on the coast, we had a really serious drought where the water restrictions kept getting tighter and tighter and tighter to the point where we were actually taking like, what do they call them, Um, sailor showers or something like that. So we, you know, we'd like, uh, we'd rinse and then we'd lather up, like turn the water off, lather up. And we would, uh, and then rinse again, and we would be catching the water, and then we would pump it out with one of our uh, kayaking bilge pumps, and we'd save the gray water for our garden. It got to be that, like, like that. And when the rainy season finally came, there was just so much gratitude for the rain. And my perception of running water now has never changed since that time. Like, I have such gratitude for running water, and my. I had no idea like I always thought that I had more of a uh, conservative mindset to be more respectful of natural resources but I had no idea how I was taking things for granted so much and now it's so different because we're still saving the gray water even though you know technically we're still okay but I mean when I look outside I'm starting to see the signs of the drought coming again so I'm we've already got our rain barrels all set up even though there's no rain but we're we're um we're preparing for that, so I totally get it. You know, I mean, you went through a different process because you had to go through all these stages to finally get to the running water. But there is a deep gratitude for having, <laughs> having water in the first place.
0: Also, I think anything you're managing yourself, you're more conscious of. So because we have, you know, what you're talking about, running out of water, we run out of water, not completely, but we regularly have issues in the dry part of the summer, which for us is probably like late June, you know, when it's been dry for a while, because we have a lot of people. And so you do have to think about it. And we have enough water. But if everybody like if several people decide to take showers, and then you water the gardens, and then someone needs to clean a salmon on the same day, then the pump cuts off and you have to wait for the well to refill, you know, you just get you know, and you have to kind of manage that you have to be aware of how much water everybody's using and you know we're we have solar panels but we're tied to the grid but there's a lot of people around that are you know have their own independent off-grid systems and the way that people who have to manage their own electricity think about electricity is similar you can see how much how conscious people are of all the different factors and how much is being used where when they're managing it themselves
1: hmm you know the other day uh it's interesting you you mentioned that the other day uh we had a power outage that was that lasted for mm, probably it was early it was early evening and it went into quite late in the evening and it was random like in the winter time it's not uncommon that we get them because we have regular wind storms here but there was um I still don't know what the cause was but you know, from an exterior perspective, just looking outside, there was no real reason for it to happen. Um, no wind, no storms, no rain, nothing. And, and it was so cool because again, my partner and I were just, um, we're like, okay, power's out. What do we do now?
0: <laughs> Cause we're
1: so used to, you know, well, um, I'm, you know, like you, I'm a writer. So I do a lot of my writing straight on the computer and it's like, okay, I'm not going to be writing anymore. We can't do this. We can't do this. We can't do this. It's amazing how much of our lives are actually tied to the grid. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, well, we'll put on a candle and we'll just talk. And it was great. We just, I mean, we we have a very good relationship anyway. We we talk a lot anyhow, but it just, it deepened our relationship. And it's like, well, let's go out for a walk, you know? And uh, it just, we were talking about our connection to the grid. And, you know, I mean, we live in a rented house, so it's a little <laughs> more complex to, um, to bring in solar panels. and, and Right, yeah, it's hard. Yeah, have- it's harder there because there's somebody else who's in control. Uh, but it's not like we don't think about it. Like my, <laughs> I would I would love to live the way you're living in a yurt with solar panels. And uh, I mean, this is kind of what I'm familiar with. You know, when, when I was a child, I grew up with grandparents and I'm, I've already mentioned this to you that had a little log cabin, no running water, no electricity. We had to go out and pump it, an outhouse, the whole thing. And I loved it. I loved it. I felt so connected to them. I felt so connected to... The Earth. I felt connected to the animals around, the, and the silence was amazing. Like I'm sure you probably get that too, because you you don't have all of the, um, you probably don't have as much of the 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 uh, civilized trappings that create so much white noise.
0: Well, I think though you need to be, you know, there's not just too romanticized. You know, we live in a real place, and so one <laughs> thing you get here in Alaska is you don't get as much. um, noise of certain kinds like no city noises but you know uh my sister-in-law said that like when she went off to college in oregon there was like a little airfield near college and when the cessnas landed she thought oh that sounds like home like alaska does have small planes <laughs> flying over it a lot <laughs> in a lot of places and they're noisy but they're but they're you know they're part of the soundscape too also, you know, even natural places, they're not quiet. Wind and waves and things like that. You go out to the ocean, they make noise. It's just a different kind. It's a
1: different kind, yeah. I mean, I, I get you about the planes because we, we have float planes right near where we live. And man, they're loud. They don't, those things don't have mufflers. <laughs> they're really loud. But one thing mm-hmm. I did notice, was, uh, you know, like for instance, uh, uh, the other day when the power went out, it was, just the, it was a different kind of silence. So mm-hmm. I was able to hear the frogs next door in the pond more clearly. I was able to hear the sound of the stream more clearly. I was, you know, and it's
0: yurts don't muffle sound very well. So we do get <laughs> to hear a lot of birds and things, you know, it, it, that's kind of fun, like at night or in the morning. And and it's even better
1: camping to hear all the birds. <laughs> now I want to talk a little bit more about your trekking because um, on your website, it says that you and your husband, you've been trekking for over a decade logging over 8,000 miles of wilderness travel. And so I did the conversion yesterday for Canadians and Europeans and listeners down under, and that's over 13,000 kilometers. So that's a lot. Like Mm 8,000 miles already sounds like a lot. But when I convert it to kilometers, which is what I'm familiar with, it's like, that's a a lot. That's Mm -hmm. a lot. So I'm curious if you could just share like a few of your... um, uh, you're, st- I don't know if this is possible, but I'm just going to throw it out there. Anyway, if you have any standout trekking adventures and, you know, just explain, yeah, just share with us some of the stories that have come up that really stand out for you. And then I want to dive a little deeper into the climate stuff.
0: Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, that's hard. Cause like, you know, think about what you're asking me to do I mean, <laughs> Even, you know, I I already said that we walked from Seattle to the Aleutians, and that was a year, and that was just one of them. (laughs) Um,
1: (laughs) That's pretty epic.
0: One of the things, maybe I'll think pick something. So one of the things I think that's interesting about doing a long trip that people don't often see when they do short trips is to see changes along the way. Like you see seasonal changes, you see ecological changes. And so I'm just thinking back to last spring, around this time, we were skiing on the sea ice going around the Seward peninsula up um, around near the Arctic Circle in Alaska. And so when we'd started, it was cold, like, you know, all of the nights at zero degrees Fahrenheit, which is minus, oh dear, I don't need to, I need to convert that into Celsius. I'm going to go ask Google here so I can tell you what I'm talking about. Let's see. Google will tell me. Okay. So like minus 18, say. So it's like minus minus 18 degrees and windy and cold. And it's clearly, you know, winter, you know, we're out there in March and April. It's winter, it's snowing, the ice, you know, sea ice is, White as far as you can see. The whole world is white. We're dressed in these ski goggles and sometimes it's sunny and sometimes not. It's stormy. And, you know, we're skiing around and everything's white, white, white. And then one day you see these birds starting to show up. You see cranes, you see swans. Like, where are they going? And, you know, sandhill cranes have this really like distinctive kind of stuttering call and so we're just out here in this endless whiteness, like listening to these cranes thinking, what are they even doing up here yet? And then you go a little farther and a little farther and suddenly everything is melting and there's birds everywhere. And you know you can go up and you can see the tundra and first you like take a picture of every little square of of tundra because it's just so cool to see something that's not white. And then you're camping on it and you're, you know, it's, light 24 hours a day and we're sleeping there and it sounds like the ducks are going to storm the tent there is so many birds and it's so noisy for that entire 24 hours and then you know you go out and you see everything come back in the spring and one of the things that struck me that is just you know you never experience spring that way if you're not actually out there in the cold the whole time and also up there in the arctic we think oh sure birds fly south for the winter but, but the amazing thing is why do they even fly north in the winter what is so special about that place that it's worth going thousands and thousands of miles to end up in that you know middle of nowhere tundra it's so it's so rich up there you know it's the arctic really is a pretty important part of the whole global ecosystem
1: and you know, on your website, I'm gonna I'm gonna expand on this a little bit. Now we're gonna go kind of into dip into the environmental aspect now, because this is where this is like the uh, the fleshy part for me that I'm really excited to talk to you about. And I'm just gonna quote on your website. You said um, that you embark on human powered expeditions across Alaska that give you the ground truth of everything from mine proposals to climate change through observation and conversation with locals. And you said you combine this ground truth with research truth using your scientific backgrounds to create comprehensive and accurate articles on key issues across the state. So, um, first of all, I guess, I mean, we've already kind of talked about it, but I, I, maybe we can go a little bit deeper into your why for doing this, like your, yeah, your, your purpose for this, like go, go deeper into the essence of what drives you to do this.
0: Um, maybe I can start with, a story kind of how the whole ground truth trekking thing got started. So this was when we were still living in Seattle, this was um, years before we walked to Alaska. And so we'd gone um, and done some trips in Alaska before for like summers and things. And when I graduated from college and we'd done one of them where we hiked about 800 miles down a chunk of the Alaska Peninsula and gone past uh, Lake Iliamna and some of the other places there and then it was a year or two later I remember reading this like little like one paragraph thing in the newspaper about this mine proposal out in this area called the pebble mine and I was like oh that's interesting I never heard of that before and I went and started trying to look into it and there was nothing Nothing out there. Nothing like this, like somebody was proposing this super gigantic, enormous mine in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the wilderness. And I couldn't find anything about it. And at that point, I had um, I had uh, I'd gotten my master's degree and was kind of like <clears throat> not sure what I was doing anymore in Seattle. I was waiting for my husband to finish his Ph.D. and just doing bits and pieces of things. I had a little jewelry business, melting glass with the sun and so I thought, well, if there's nothing out there, I'll make there be something out there. And so I just <laughs> kind of went out there. I went to the nearest town, and I, like, hiked out to the to the proposal site, and the helicopter's buzzing all over me. And I took a bunch of pictures, and then I went back to the village, and I talked to people in the village, and I gave them copies of the pictures, and then I, like, started putting together a website and, you know, finding out everything I could and the mind company had this like meeting and I went to the meeting and I started putting stuff out there and, you know, it was, you know, the only website about, it was the only thing, I was the only thing out there about this whole proposal. And I got to watch kind of as the issue got bigger and bigger and bigger and, and more and more people heard about it. And now there's like, I don't know, have you heard of the pebble mine? No, no, but a lot of people have. And, you know, and it actually probably is shut down now. Like, I don't think that's going to happen. And it was kind of, you know, it was way, way bigger than me. But it was something that I could see that I had some help in getting started that like, there really are just things that people aren't paying attention to, that you can help getting started, and that, you know, by going out there, I had some stories I could tell. Because stories telling is part of how, you know, people listen. Because if you're going to start talking about something, you know, we're all more interested in stories. It's how humans are, you know, evolved to be. And, I love science, but you're not going to get someone to read, you know, a scientific paper unless they're another scientist in the field, but you but they might be interested in reading a story that still points out some
1: interesting, you know, important
0: things about the world.
1: And that is that is so pertinent. I mean, that's basically the essence of this podcast is bringing people onto the show to tell their stories about you know, what they've, their explorations, their transformations, and really just bringing more, uh, more heart into the world. And storytelling definitely does that. Like I know for myself, when I read anything that's scientific, I have a very limited bandwidth before I shut down. But when I hear people's stories, I am like, I am so engaged because we, it helps us connect to each other. So I totally, yeah, I totally get that. And I mean, the reason that you and I are speaking right now is because our mutual connection Roz Savage brought us together with that article that you wrote following Alaska's vanishing ice. And when I read that I was reading your story, your experiences of, of, uh, you know, being right there on the ground writing about this. So I think that this is actually a really great place to kind of segue into that article and talk about what you noticed. I guess it was kind of like a timeline that you brought up in that article. So what you noticed then, what you're noticing now, and uh, if you could just share more of like um, a long format of that article, because this is, like I said, this is where I'm at right now. I wanna know what's going on from people who are living it.
0: And I think that, you know, one of the inspirations to go out there was, you know, obviously climate change is a critical issue, you know, and I've seen various aspects of it around here and read about it. And when you start looking into climate change, sea ice comes up all the time. You know, sea ice is a big controlling factor in the climate and how it's shrinking and what that means. And I realized that like most people in the world, <clears throat> except for a, scattering of small communities that are in the Arctic, I'd never really seen sea ice. I mean, I didn't even really have a picture. Of it. Well, that's sea ice. I guess the ocean's frozen, right? It's like the pond behind the house, but bigger. And so, <laughs> which is not true, but you know, you don't really have a picture of it. And I thought, okay, well, the best way to Because I know that this is a really key issue. The best way to learn, one of the ways I can learn about it and write about it is to go out there. And so we kind of designed this trip to just go out and see, you know, over a single seasonal cycle of spring coming, see the sea ice breaking up and then what that's like, how it works and how that's changing. Because the sea ice breaks up now vastly earlier than it did before, and it never gets as thick as it did before either. And so that's what we did. We went up to Nome, and went by we I mean um, me, my husband, and two little kids. So we had like a six-year-old and a four-year-old <laughs> this whole time <laughs> because that's that's kind of how we roll. And <laughs> so we're going really slow. <laughs> going really slow is actually. Once you get past the logistics of needing to carry enough stuff, it's actually pretty good for for experiencing things. And, you know, one of the things you notice first about the sea ice is that it's not just flat and white. There's like huge kind of mountains on it where the ice is all, you know, pushed up into into pressure ridges And there's chunks that are windblown and open all winter long. We heard um, we heard whales in some of those. And one of the things that we noticed when we very first got to one of those open chunks is the difference in albedo. And so the albedo is this scientific concept. It's in all the articles and things about climate change. And it's basically what we all know that white things reflect more light than dark things. So if you go out in the summer and you wear a black shirt, you're gonna feel hotter than if you go out and you wear a white shirt. And this plays out on the global scale because if you have ice out there in the Arctic and the sun hits it, it bounces off. And a lot of that potential heat, a lot of that energy just goes right back out into space where it came from and nothing warms up very much. It stays cold, and you go, you're out there, we're out there on the sea ice when it's still all white and wintry, and, you know, we're wearing these dark ski goggles all the time because it's really sunny up there. It's really sunny, but it doesn't get warm. The sun just comes, and it, like, bounces off the sea ice, and it bounces off the snow, and everything is blindingly bright, and it's still, you know, negative 20. It's still cold. And then, you know, you get to a chunk of open ocean and before we could even see the open ocean, we could see the sky, we could see this like dark gray sky up ahead. And at first we were actually like a little bit scared of this, we like climbed up on a little pile of ice and we looked at the dark sky and wondering, I don't know, is there some kind of crazy storm coming? Do we need to seek shelter? What's, what's up with the black clouds? And then we got closer and realized that that darkness, was just the was reflection. There was a chunk of open water. And, you know, the the light hit the dark ocean water. And it didn't bounce up and make the sky white. And so the sky was just like noticeably black over the water. And you could see the line. It was white over the snow and black over the water. And you could really just see the albedo. You could see that that chunk of open ocean sucked in that sunlight, whereas the snow didn't. And that's what's happening across the whole Arctic. It's a feedback loop. So when you get just a little chunk of open ocean like that, so dramatically darker than the white ice, that it sucks in sunlight, sucks in sunlight, absorbs heat, and then starts melting away at the edges of ice next to it until... And so once that process gets started, it's hard to stop. And so that's why, you know, the sea ice, you can look at all the graphs and see why the sea ice extent has been dramatically smaller every, you know, almost every year. You know, they, I was looking at the graphs and they keep track of it for, you know, 20 years and it's all two standard deviations below the average for like the last few years. And they keep shifting the average and it keeps being just down two standard deviations below, there's so much less sea ice and you're not going to really, it's hard to get it back because of that feedback. The less ice you get, the less ice you have. And so, you know, we are up there and we are seeing that, you know, as the sun starts hitting at those, those dark patches of water and it starts melting. And once it starts going, then you get sheen of water on top of the ice and then it's not white anymore it's kind of turquoise and that's a little bit darker than the ice and you know the difference between you can't see anything but white and you can ski over it wherever you want to you better be careful because the ice flow you're standing on is going to like drift out into the open blue is just a week or two and I think that you know, what we saw, of course, was spring and spring happens every year, but it happens sooner and it happens more dramatically. And you're seeing the same processes that are getting rid of the ice permanently in the Arctic, you know, when you're out there watching it in the spring.
1: So this is, I I think you've just described to me what a self-reinforcing feedback loop is now, because I've, you know, I hear that term regularly and I have a, I have an idea in my head, but I think you've just really defined it now. And it seems like what I'm reading out there now in the um, little bits of news that come my way is that there are numerous self-reinforcing feedback loops that are playing out now, which is why that term abrupt climate change is now uh, more, you know, we see that more regularly in... um, even in mainstream media, I mean, in the media, whatever media I read is not mainstream. So I'm getting, I'm getting Mm -hmm. what I consider more of the truth. And speaking to you, like, I feel like I'm getting full on truth, because you're out there. And it's really, it's quite alarming, too, because, you know, I mean, I'm reading more about how Each year, they keep saying, was the warmest year in decade. And and I just, uh, I watched a video recently of that comedian Jimmy Kimmel. He was talking about Sarah Palin, I guess. I mean, she's like the ultimate climate change denier and just put out some kind of a uh, movie about the climate change hoax.
0: Interestingly, that wasn't always true. Like, she, I think there was just an article in, in the Alaska newspaper, not that recently, that pointed out that um, when Sarah Palin was our governor before she got kind of became part of the national machine, she'd actually acknowledged that climate change was a problem (laughs) and then completely went back on that as well as all sorts of other things, which is, um, you know, it was a different, different, like it's, it's interesting what people will do to be you know part of their message machine
1: <laughs> it, you know it's like when people enter the machine they become the machine i think that's basically what happens um mm-hmm. you know but jimmy kimmel was he said something really important he said that to know to determine um what the hottest year is all you need to do is look in your calendar basically and then you'll determine what the hottest year on record is and i know that there's a lot of uh there's a lot of talk out there now about how 2016 is already becoming the hottest year on record and before, um, you know, before we started recording, you and I were both talking about how we're noticing things that are, you know, coming into bloom a lot quicker in our own front yards. Like for me, like, I feel like a blackberries have descended on much, much earlier, like a couple of months earlier, and we're going to be picking berries probably two months earlier than we normally have. Same with the blossoms and everything. And you know, in, in our neighborhood, people are talking about, wow, spring came early last year, but it came, came even earlier this year. And you mentioned something that um, I wanted to weave into the conversation about how we can't get complacent, basically, because maybe it's 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 like there's this warming trend, but then there might be a dip. So I'm wondering if we could just talk a little bit about that and how it's not linear.
0: Well, I think the thing to, to remember is that there is a linear, there is an aspect that's linear. There's the slope, the world is getting warmer, and that just goes up. But on top of that, you have a lot of noise because you have a lot of noise even day to day. Like you think, okay, it might be colder tomorrow than it was today, but that doesn't mean that summer isn't coming. It means that weather is variable. And so it's certainly variable on a day to day scale. We're all perfectly comfortable with the fact that it could be sunny and warm today and cool and rainy tomorrow. And then of course there's variability seasonally too, right? The world is getting warmer, but the world will still have winter, like it will get cooler in the winter, warmer in the summer, we get that. And then there's also a level of year to year variability that's gonna be laid on top of that climate trend. So some winters are warmer than others and some winters are colder than others And the difference between the warm and cold winters is still going to be there, but we're just going to shift all of them up the scale. So maybe next winter is going to be, you know, twice as snowy and 10, you know, five degrees cooler than this winter, but it'll still be way warmer than that cool winter would have been 50 years ago. And then 10 years from now, our cold winters will probably be warmer than (laughs) the warm winters of the past. So, but you've got to remember that there's still going to be that variability because I don't know, we kind of joke sometimes that, you know, every time like on the Eastern seaboard where a lot of the people in the U S live, every time it snows there, people say, see, climate change isn't happening. It snowed. And (laughs) that's, that's just not how it works. You know, you're looking at a long-term trend, but individual years and individual weeks and individual seasons, there's noisiness. There's things like El Nino, there's things like La Nina, and those still occur. You know, all of that noise still occurs. It's just late. Instead of that noise wiggling us up and down from a flat line, the noise wiggles up and down from a
1: line that's going
0: dramatically up.
1: It's funny because, you know, uh, when I i want to read those those uh comments from people yeah see there is no no climate change they're getting buried under snow like they're having they call them snow events now it's not just a snowfall and some of that
0: actually is linked to climate change too because you know i we have a friend that's a weather forecaster and what can happen um when you get warmer air up in the Arctic is that the jet stream can kink and get stuck. So it can lead to what we've had the past few winters, which is dramatically normal because some of that Arctic air is going, it's going out to the East coast instead of coming down like where we are. And so you get this dramatically warmer weather on the west coast and you get cold on the east coast and it's not because climate change isn't happening it's in fact you know something that could have happened anyway that's exacerbated and (laughs) intensified by climate change by the fact that those that jet stream of air can get kinked and stuck over in a
1: part of the world that's not used to getting that arctic air it's yeah it's complicated it seems very like the whole thing's very seems very complex um but what we're noticing is that we're noticing things are playing out in um louder ways that can't be ignored like here in canada for instance in my neighboring province okay they've got what do they call that fire in fort mcmurray now the beast (laughs) it just keeps burning it burns the northern part of the province. It's like, I don't know how many hectares it is now, something like uh, 500,000 hectares, and they have no control over this thing. It's now heading towards the oil sands, ironically enough, and it's heading towards Saskatchewan, and there's just no control. And even in British Columbia, nor- northern British Columbia, the fire season has started earlier than it ever has. And I wouldn't be surprised if, it's, if it came here again. We We, ha- we had a fire... Like that, that just burned for months just across the inlet for me. And it was terrifying. Like it was really, it was a huge wake up call for me to just really understand the severity of where we're at. So there's the fires. There's a great barrier reef now that's they're saying is 97% bleached and it's on and on. I
0: think to think about with forests also is to think about, um, insect pests. Cause if you look, um, at the boreal forests, especially, but, A lot of northern forests are, um, you know, there's insects that are pests of trees that can kill them. And historically, the cold winters have often been something that keeps those pests in check. And so you have pretty large scale forest die offs that can be due to insects that are a natural part of the ecosystem that can be exacerbated by climate change. We have the spruce bark beetle up here, and there have always been outbreaks of the spruce bark beetle, but cool temperatures are something that stops it or slows it down, and so you can expect more. In fact, you know, we're wondering if we get one here, because the last one wiped out a lot of the forest just across the bay from where we live, and it didn't quite get here. But is the next one, you know, is the next one going to be worse? And like you can have, so the burning is part of that, but also insect pests are part of that too. (laughs) And if you look up, there's stories about those. And then in fact, sometimes there's ironic things like in Southeast Alaska, the yellow cedars, some of them, their roots are freezing because there's not as much snow. So there's not as much snow. So if they get a cold day, their roots freeze and then they die. So you actually get global, you get uh, warmer winters freezing trees.
1: So it's so much more. And I think that this is really, this is an important conversation. It's so much more than just um, weather anomalies. It's ecosystem, ecosystems starting to collapse with these, with all of the things that are playing out with it, all of this imbalance on this same train of thought. I read an article, I think it was in January of this year, January or February of this year, about uh, a mass die-off of seabirds up in Alaska.
0: Yeah, we. I mean, they were on the beaches here. Uh, they were common murals, and they were everywhere. You can still see bits and pieces of them up in the woods near the beach that the eagles scavenged and brought up there. And yeah, they, they starved to death, and I guess the, the best theory was that, you know, the water was warmer, their food fish were somewhere different than they were, and they just died. There were hundreds, thousands all over the beaches all over the state. <clears throat> that must have been quite a sight, yeah, I mean, it was you could you could just like walk the beach and just yeah count dead birds and my part, my beach, you know, our beaches right here weren't even nearly the worst of them.
1: Yeah, I mean, when I read that, I just felt my heart sink. And they were, I mean, and in each article, it just seemed like the numbers that they were counting just kept getting higher and higher. And I think that they counted 8,000, but I'm sure that that's just what washed up. I mean, who knows what's lost at sea? There
0: were a lot more than that. Because you can't really, it's a hard thing to count, yeah. right? There's lots of remote beaches that nobody was counting. I'm sure they tried to do some statistics, but you know they would say, you know, for months afterwards, anytime a group of scientists happened to go to some other chunk of the coast to look at whatever, they would also find mirrors.
1: And I want to go back to um, your article, because I know that you, I think you mentioned the mirrors in your article, um, but you, you also mentioned something, I've just pulled it up right now. You said that the ice was losing 19,000 square miles a day now. And that's significant. 19,000 square miles a day. And I think that, you know, you have to,
0: and like, like I was saying with the weather, you have to remember that, that you have, that you're looking at variation. You know, you have to look at the trend beyond the variation. Like it's really dramatic to see the ice melt, but also you should expect that some, that there will be a fair amount of ice melting in the spring every year. It's just it's more and it's sooner and the people up there say like, Oh yeah, we never saw it this open in June before. And that's the thing. Like, actually we didn't, if we'd known better, you know, if we had been well versed in the history of that area, we might've gone too late because we just sort of thought, Oh yeah, I bet we'll see the ice break up sometime in May. And we did, but when we talked to people up there, they didn't expect it to break up in May. They expected, that it would be like a month later we might not have even seen it <laughs> so i think that the ice does and you and because of that feedback because the water is darker and warmer the ice you know you more of it melts that feedback loop which in biology we always call the positive feedback loop but it has nothing to do with whether it's positive like good it just means that it's increasing and building on itself you know and so then at the height of the summer, when there's the least sea ice, it's a smaller patch. And then because also, you know, the more ice you get, the more white stuff, the more it grows. And so when it starts growing again in the winter, it's starting from the smaller place and in a warmer water. And so it's harder. It doesn't grow as much. It stays thin. And then when it melts, it melts back even more. And so you're just The cycle, the melting and growing is continuing, but that feedback is just chipping away at it every year. And so much of the feedbacks are actually down to that, you know, there's all sorts of complexity. But I think you can understand a lot if you just understand light and dark, like that albedo, the difference between light and dark. Because it plays out in the sea ice, it also plays out in... um, land cover. So if you have snow on the ground, it's white. But things that stick through brush or trees are dark. So if you go up to Arctic areas, they used to be all tundra, covered by white, reflects the light, stays cold. But then you get warmer summers and shrubs start to grow and they're taller and they stick out through the snow. Then the snow comes and those are still dark they absorb sunlight, they make it warm, they melt it. And so I think a lot of that, there's a lot of different feedbacks, but that light and dark is a pretty, pretty key one. And actually a, you know, pretty, it's a concept we all get, you know, we all know that.
1: I'm, I'm curious to know, like, um, you know, since you, you've got the, uh, the benefit of the bio, you know, the biology background, you've got the scientific aspect, you're experiencing it and you're living it. I'm just curious to know, uh, you know, how you're feeling, what you're thinking, what your thoughts are, um, about how this is all playing out and which, what feels like, you know, to someone like me, who's really aware and, and paying attention to this, um, what seems like it's really kind of accelerating in a, in a, uh, kind of like in an out of control way. I mean, I'm not going to mince words. It just seems like it's out of control now with all of these feedback loops that are, that are playing out all at the same time. That's true. I think that. You know, I think we are,
0: I think that one thing that bothers me is when people say it's too late to do anything about it. Because there are ways, there are things we can't stop, but it's never too late. Because first of all, you know, there are feedbacks we've set off with climate change, we could turn off all our cars tomorrow. And there would still be changes that we've started happening that you can't go back from that is absolutely true. on the other hand, you can always make it worse. so if you look and think, oh it's hopeless, let's just keep burning all the fossil fuels you can." Well, that future is a lot worse than the future where we stop doing things, even if both of those futures are still different than the past like we have changed things irrevocably, but that doesn't mean you want to make it worse like. If you burn down half your, ha- you know, if you burn down, like, half your town, you don't say, oh, well, we burned down half our town, might as well burn down the rest. You want to, like, <laughs> you want to say, hey, well, let's stop this fire and, like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> move into the other half and try to build up. <laughs>
1: You know, on the same note, you know, I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on this. What I've been reading about is a lag time. So I've been reading uh, about how right now we're experiencing basically the repercussions of our collective actions and behaviors from the seventies. Do you know any, you know, what do you, do you know about that and what, what that's all about? I guess, I don't know how exactly
0: you say that, but these feedback loops take time, right? You know, you're talking about we're talking about things like plants growing, you know, and if you're talking about things like plants growing, then of course they don't grow overnight. And certainly people have seen climate change decades ago. So if you're looking at anything with feedback loops, then there's going to be time, you know, permafrost takes time to warm up and plants take time to grow and ice takes time to melt. But I haven't read about that specific and sea level too. like we've locked in a certain amount of sea level rise that's going to be happening over the next decades, no matter what we do now. But I don't know that it's the same for every feedback loop. Like, I don't know, maybe it averages to 40 years. I haven't read that. So I can't say but but lag times would be part of anything
1: should be part of anything. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Now I just want to, um, bring it back to the kind of like the trekking and the, uh, exploration aspect of your life and wind things down with, uh, just a question about what you, what's on the horizon for you and your family. Yeah. I mean,
0: to some extent, I think that we're happy, like, you know, we have kind of, we have a life here, you know, we have our yearn and our gardens and our wilderness nearby and we love it. And then we do these expeditions. We usually do big ones every couple of years where we go out, you know, for at least a few months and go out and try to learn something interesting. And then of course, in the meantime, we're doing all kinds of small things and here, and I don't, you know, I don't, uh, there's nothing I wish for that I don't already have.
1: So I That's so awesome. Doing the same thing. <laughs> Do you have any big expeditions coming up?
0: Um, This is our kind of off year. So we're going to do small things. Like we have um, a plan where if the park lets us, we might build a hiking trail in the nearby park this summer and do things like a few weeks here and there, like kind of in our immediate part of the state and then next year we're going to go off and do something bigger and we've toyed with the idea of leaving Alaska for a little bit and and taking the kids to um to South America to kind of get I always hesitate to go farther partly because of the climate change impact of travel but partly I think there's a benefit to that too and there's interesting things you know to To seeing different cultures and so my idea of balancing those is to say well we're flexible we'll just do it once and go for a year and see what we can learn
1: (laughs) what an awesome life thank you so much Erin this has been this has been really interesting like you have such an interesting life and the fact that you're out there you know speaking about what's really happening in the world as well as just you know filling your heart with what is you know right for you. That's a really awesome combination. So I I really I'm grateful for your willingness to to chat with me today and and to share your experiences.
0: Yeah, thanks. It's been great talking to you.
1: That's Erin McKittrick and her personal experiences with adventure with trekking and also with living in an altered climate. Show notes can be found at my website at debelsarcocom backslash 107, where you can connect with Erin if she inspires you or piques your curiosity. And you can also learn more about her adventures and her work. And also to keep the Unplug podcast running, to keep this show alive, your support of the show determines its future. So if this podcast means something to you, Please support my work with a monthly contribution at patreon.com backslash podcast. You can also find a link to that under the podcast link on my website at depozarco.com. And that is the end of yet another Unplug podcast. May we continue to open our hearts on our evolutionary journey of awakening to the point where our heads can no longer make sense of it all. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your courage. And remember, live with passion, live with purpose, change the world.